Thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Postural Mechanisms in Moderate to Severe Cerebral Palsy. Joining me today are Editor-in-Chief Nina Ramirez and co-authors Dr. Adam Goberth and Dr. Sandra Saavedra. So let's get started. Hello, Sandy and Adam. Such a delight to have you today for the podcast, and clearly your paper addresses a clinically extremely important issue. Cerebral palsy is a common cause of motor disabilities in children, and what I find incredibly interesting is that your study is a great example of a translational study, uh, which brings together a clinician as well as a bioengineer. And so why don't we start with Sandy? How did you get interested in severe cerebral palsy? I began as a physical therapist and I spent over 20 years as a pediatric PT and I became frustrated with my lack of ability to make changes in children, especially those with more severe disability. So I decided to go back and get a PhD thinking that if I could learn to read the neuroscience, I would be able to apply it clinically. And um, I worked with Marjorie Willicott for my PhD. And what I discovered during that process is that there just wasn't very much research for those children who were as severe as the ones I wanted to understand. So I ultimately decided I'm gonna change my career and go become a researcher because somebody who knows these kids needs to push for more research for them. Sandy, I totally relate to what you just said. You know, I'm at the Seattle Children's Research Institute and we have so many parents contacting us because of this huge problem of cerebral palsy. And they suggest, can we not establish an own center that can intersect, you know, this understanding the development of the brain and also the motor outcomes and getting more mechanistic insights into this. And perhaps can you describe how the different backgrounds of you as well as Adam contributed to this study that is so interdisciplinary? Sure. I'll go ahead and start Adam and then, and then you can, can come in. So one of the things that happened is that as I began trying to figure out how to do research on these more severely involved children is I needed to start immediately interacting with engineers because you can't just ask these children to sit up and be able to study them. So we really had to collaborate to a first just to get devices to help us get the children in a position where they could show us their capacity for postural control. And then um, my dad was a machinist. He never had any college education, but he was a machinist and an inventor. So I grew up watching him design things every evening. And, and so, of course, my head was full of ideas. I initially went to my dad and said, can't you build this for me and build this for me? And then I had to go to the University of Oregon um, engineering. They weren't actually didn't have an engineering department there, but they had engineers who built things for the researchers. So they took on building my first postural support unit for me there. So then when I went on to get my postdoc, I again started looking for engineers and ultimately ended up going to University of Hartford specifically because Adam was there at that time. I had almost met him in Portland knowing he was studying sensory contributions to postural control and had missed him in Oregon. So when I went to University of Hartford and discovered he was there, I asked him, would you collaborate with me on research? And as soon as he said, yes, it was a done deal um, because he could then apply all these engineering techniques to try and understand what's going on in the nervous system for these children. So that's kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so Adam is your inventor. 
Adam is Adam is my inventor, and we've we've had wonderful walk and talks all over campus trying to decide what do we do and how do we do it. Thank you so much, and of course, a huge impact of cerebral palsy is on posture. And so, could you perhaps go into more depth why understanding posture control is so important for this particular population of patients? Well, why don't I jump in first with just a tiny bit about posture control, just in general, and why we're looking at sort of sitting. Um, so in general, you know, we think of posture control as one's ability to maintain balance or an upright posture against gravity. And we know it's important in general, it underlies many, if not most of all of our voluntary activities. But we normally think of postural control as standing up. So the vast majority of studies is looking at people in standing or maybe walking, but like bipedal, right? But many of the principles that we've learned from those studies are actually applicable also to the more foundational task of sitting and controlling your trunk against gravity and your head against gravity. And these are really foundational skills. And for people who don't have the ability to sit independently, there's some really big implications there. Um, and I'll let Sandy jump into some of those. Most people can't imagine what it is to not have postural control because you just live with it all the time. But for a child who doesn't have trunk control, they either have to use their hands to prop themselves up or they're hanging off to the side of their chair or tipped in in some way that, that makes it hard for them to see and interact with people or to see and interact with materials. Um, if you can't sit independently, you have difficulty feeding yourself. You have difficulty aligning yourself to get food. You have difficulty swallowing. Um, so these children with severe CP have a plethora of secondary conditions and additional complications that are all, uh, many of them fed by this basic deficit at the level of the foundation of postural control. So just making a slight change in postural supports and postural control can make a huge difference in the quality of life for a child with severe CP. Yeah, and I can imagine it's also a huge difference in, in the long-term care of these children, correct? Because, I mean, you will get probably scoliosis and all sorts of problems. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Respiratory issues, scoliosis, mm -hmm. they're at risk for all kinds of additional complications. Yeah, Sandy, I want to go back to the respirations because, you know, my background is in breathing, so I want to know more about it. But maybe before we go there, could you tell us about uh, systems identification? So yeah, so systems identification is one of the key methods that we leverage in this study. In general, it's a method to help better understand dynamic systems, and these systems often use feedback. So in effect, what you need to do is you need to be able to measure a stimulus or an input that you're giving to what we would say is the system. So in our case, it's the postural system that's complicated. But if we can measure the, in a stimulus or an input, and then we can measure a response, we, we can relate those together and learn something about the system. So, so sort of as a crude analogy, if you're driving down the highway and you look at another driver, you don't know what kind of mood he or she is in, right? But if you cut them off, we can call that the stimulus, and we look at their response, then if they give you a gentle wave, you know you've just learned that they're in a good mood. If they give you the middle finger or something else, then you've just learned something you otherwise wouldn't have learned by doing nothing, right? And so in a way, in posture control, we don't you know, obviously do crude stimuli like that, but the types of things that we do is we'll have people standing or sitting, in our case, a lot of sitting on a support bench that can tip up and down at different frequencies. 
And the way that people respond, that is their body sway to those frequencies can tell us something about their underlying neural control. Uh, we can also use uh, visual stimuli. People have used galvanic stimuli where they're providing a stimulus to the vestibular system. People have used vibration, all sorts of stimuli where they measure either electromyography or body sway responses. And by kind of correlating those two, not just in the time domain, but also in the frequency domain, we can get a really detailed view about the underlying postural control system. So we've definitely had to make some adjustments, you know, because this isn't a healthy adult older population. So we've had to tweak things quite a bit and try to be creative to make it work for our population. But that's kind of the underlying theory of systems identification. You know, when it comes to posture, there is the emotional part of posture, you know, like you can see someone depressed on the posture. And there's a huge control system coming, for example, from the ponds, etc. So see this these differences also see p children that that you know under certain circumstances they overreact and then maybe become totally stiff more than under control and yeah. you know nino that's i think a really important part of our methods is that the uh, more than 20 years i had of clinical practice makes a huge difference in our ability to get good quality data from these children because many times they're nonverbal we are putting them in a situation where we are sitting them up and giving them a perturbation. And they are children who that's a rather challenging thing to do to someone is to perturb them when they're already maybe not sure of their posture. So several things in our methods have really helped us with that. Um, one is we use something called the segmental assessment of trunk control. And, and you know a typical baby gains postural control from the head downwards. And everybody who's ever had a baby knows that. They start by supporting the head and then they gradually give support lower and lower. Well, it turns out that that's really how children with disabilities learn postural control too. And so for these children with severe CP, you can actually start working your way down their spine and discover where they have control and where they don't have control. So the first thing we did was find a place where we can, can support them so that they can feel confident. And that's the first level that we tested for them was that level where they had control. And so the perturbation wasn't as scary to them. Um, and then we did go ahead and push them a little bit further. We went on down to try to see how low can we go, but we always gave them some level of support so that they knew they weren't gonna fall. And the perturbations were small. The perturbations are just eight degrees from peak to peak. So it's not like a huge push. A lot of the kids tolerated this paradigm better than I ever expected. I was, I was really pleasantly surprised when, you know, I had, I had originally looked at kids just sitting on a, on a bench with no perturbation and they tolerated this perturbation paradigm that Adam created for them much better than they do sitting on a bench with nothing happening. I think it feels kind of like you're on a, a riding in a car on a bumpy road. So you've got these kind of little, frequencies that just kind of bump you around a little bit. So, so by kind of combining those things, we also let the kids watch their favorite movie so that they could just sit there and watch a movie while we bump them around a little bit. And yet we were able to get some really nice data while they were trying really hard to stabilize themselves to try and keep up with what was happening. I just want to jump in one thing also, because it is such an interesting question. One of the things that we do is we test people multiple times, right? So we know that sometimes someone's going to be a little more on and sometimes a little more off. And that's something that I found was even more important with these data than in healthy controls is to have multiple repetitions. And more recently, Sandra and I have 
been playing around with the idea of using like a uh, visual stimulus that's almost like video gaming in a way so that we incentivize them even more and reward them even more for really trying to be upright. And um, so those are some of the things that we're thinking about as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I can, again, relate to this because we did a study with threat syndrome children. And, you know, as soon as they were in a hospital setting, I mean, everything changed. And we had to do a lot of this at home with their favorite videos and in their environment, you know. And I guess, yeah, studying posture is, is probably a very, very critical aspect of this. Now, can we dive a little bit more into the main results of your study? So perhaps summarize for our listeners, you know, what were the main points of your findings and so we can uh, go from there. Yeah, maybe I'll just jump in. I think there's probably four main results. Uh, the first one has mostly to do with the experimental data, which wasn't terribly surprising, but it's still important to mention. Uh, we found that there were larger responses to the perturbations than obviously a mature postural system and the responses were more variable. We gave uh, kind of like the same stimulus multiple times and the response was different from one time to the next to the next and quite different in the kids with CP compared to the mature adult system. And then in addition, the uh, experimental data showed that the responses were uh, variable across subjects, which matches like the heterogeneity. So that was kind of like the experimental data, sort of larger responses, more variable and variable across each other. But then when we get into the modeling, I think the second main result is that um, seven of the eight uh, subjects, and we kind of had to do modeling to each individual subject because of the heterogeneity. And so in seven of the eight subjects, we saw a very clear pattern that all of these subjects adopted a simpler control system. They were relying primarily on passive uh, muscle stiffness and kind of reflexive damping. So sort of passive and reflexive um, systems as opposed to sensory integration for postural control. To the extent that they did use sensory integration, it was limited to proprioception. So I think that was kind of like the second main point. And then the third main point is largely because of this system they adopted, they tended to deviate much more from upright and therefore had much larger torques, which is, um, you would presume that's going to be correlated with energy expenditure, uh, much larger energy expenditure, and just the simple task of sitting upright, which kind of matches what people have found clinically. And then the last point, point number four, I guess, would be kind of an important result, is that we were actually able to model the postural control system by assuming it was sort of a linear control system plus noise. And I think that's sort of the first step towards future hypotheses because you can really kind of represent neural systems that way and then hypothesize what would happen if this or that changed and then try to go change it and see if you're actually right. Adam, this is very interesting and brings me actually to another question. Soil palsy is very heterogeneous. And to what extent can you relate a phenotype of a given patient to specific neurological deficits? You know, this is just modeling of eight children. And most of these children, uh, one had a little bit of dyskinesia, but for the most part, they had spastic CP. And so in terms of, of looking at the heterogeneity, we really didn't have a broad enough group yet to be able to, to say a lot there. What did surprise me though is, number one, each child had a no, no two children had exactly the same parameters, which means that each child did have an individually, had to be individually modeled. And yet out of that, seven of the eight 
had this pattern of either passive stiffness and damping or proprioception. And only one of the children, the, the only one who was a GMFCS3 who could walk with a walker is the only child who showed any kind of integration that was more than that. So I think that, th that even though there's this huge heterogeneity, I think that some of the underlying restrictions to their control system may be the same. And we don't really know what it is that helps children to begin to integrate visual and vestibular input. I mean, children with CP have vision and they have vestibular systems. Some studies have shown that, that they have normal vestibular function. And we had worked with some physicians from Mass Eye and Ear who tested our kids and said, no, their vestibular system is working for them. They're getting their visual vestibular responses, but they're not able to integrate it at a level with their posture, which is a huge clinical implication to me. And it kind of makes sense why they have such high energy costs and um, are a little bit delayed in their responses because proprioception is not as fast of a sense for, for telling you, you know, if you have to wait until you feel it in your muscles, you've, you've gone further from midline. That's fascinating. I mean, we know that, you know, functional connectivity brain changes dramatically during normal development in healthy children. Yes. And so, so probably what's happening there is that some of the functional connectivity is not established or will not be established. So that leads me to this question, you know, can you harness, you know, this development that we know exists for an effective rehabilitation strategy, you know, like that you know, okay, that this functional connectivity, let's say from the vestibular system to your trunk control is missing. Can you train this very specifically? Of course, that's the fascinating underlying question of why we're doing everything we're doing. It's like, how can we apply this and make a change for these kids? I'm so sorry, Adam, jump in, if, if, um, but I'm gonna just take a minute or two here to say that you and I practice postural control for probably 12 or more hours every day because we're vertical. A child with severe CP may have absolutely no opportunity in a full day to practice upright control. And so, you know, because we tip them backwards or we tip them forwards or we prop them up in a way that they're not actively engaged. So there are a number of interventions that are being studied now where you use a segmental approach and then also begin looking at how do you work with kids in a vertical alignment. So, so that's one, one piece is to begin to say, put the child at a position with the right amount of support that they actually have the opportunity to get themselves vertically aligned. So if you just sit them on the floor, they don't have an opportunity to get vertical. They don't have enough control to get vertical. But if you can give them enough support that, that you can find that spot where you have just the right amount of support that they can now practice being vertical, I think that can really make a nice difference for these kids. I think you answered that great. Thank you. Yeah, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if the vestibular ocular reflex is mostly intact. And yet we also know that the vestibular system is, is also used for posture control. So like you have the same sensory system used for more than one kind of functional activity, right? And if you don't ever practice it for posture control, you could imagine that it exists for one function, but is really deficient for another. And so it wouldn't surprise me likewise with reading a child with severe CP may be able to use vision just fine to interpret the world, but the actual integration of that visual information functionally into their posture control system might be very deficient for lack of practice. And so, I mean, just to point out those two were the two systems that were kind of relied upon the least from what we could tell. And it doesn't mean that 
that they can't be used for other functional purposes. I think that's a magic thing about posture. Posture is one of those things that underlies everything we do and it overlaps everywhere you go. The trunk muscles do so many different functions. The same muscles work for respiration that, that work for posture. I mean, they have overlapping functions. One of the things I wonder about also is that a typical baby has tremendous gains in their visual and vestibular system during that first six to seven months of life. So those happen to coincide with their development of upright control for sitting. And I'm not sure, I, I'm not sure, I think part of the process for them might be setting the gains, understanding you know, how much movement of the optical flow is associated with how many degrees of, of postural sway. And it might be because these children with CP haven't had that experience or when they try to activate their muscles, they're more erratic, that they can't do that fine tuning of um, really tuning the muscle responses to match what the visual or vestibular inputs are. And therefore they maybe can't rely on visual and vestibular input to match it to the postural responses. So basically maybe it could be adaptive because you know these CP children have often asymmetries. So maybe because of these asymmetries, it's better not to have uh, you know, supraspinal control to not mess it up even more. It's right. one of the... Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I sort of want to jump off that a little bit. In a way, healthy sort of mature uh, posture control often involves a high use of sensory information, especially if you're on like a tilted surface. If you're on a tilted surface, you really need to use vision and vestibular because that gives you cues of where upright is. And so adults leverage these systems in order to stay more upright and therefore, you know, one goal is to be upright. Another goal, because you're more upright, you don't have to generate as much torque to counteract gravity because you're vertical with respect to gravity. So you sort of accomplish two things at once by doing that, but that comes at a cost. It's a kind of a neurologically complicated process to rely on multiple sensory feedback systems, integrate them, rely upon the right one, and then activate muscles accordingly. And that all takes a time delay. So if you're not able to do that, your alternative is to rely on a more simple kind of passive and reflexive system, which is a simpler neurologically, but functionally not as optimal from the standpoint of balance or energy efficiency. So you, I, I could kind of see someone having a sort of a difficult <laughs> neurological versus functional choice to make, right? I, I can imagine, you know, like normally, as you say, the cerebellum, for example, is an important signal for timing, comparing what it is and what you planned. And if this is all disturbed, then it's very hard and you better rely just on your local reflexes. And so do you think that similar situation happens in spinal cord injury where we know, let's say, supraspinal control is missing? Very much. So I just finished a sabbatical at University of Louisville because they're getting some really nice changes in trunk control with this segmental support. And so, you know, I think it's probably the same across a lot of neurologic diagnoses that for children who don't have upright control, they need to have some practice in upright control to begin activating what they have. And with the kids with spinal cord injury, they're actually activating the spinal cord below the lesion to try to improve posture. And the kids with CP don't really get a chance to do that either, you know, when they're non-ambulatory. So I, I do think there are many parallels there. I, 
I keep looking at Adam and thinking, don't you want to model kids with spinal cord injury too? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the inventor, Adam, what's going on? <laughs> no, no, but, uh, you know, speaking of invention here, you know, when you think about the wheelchairs, they're often made to be comfortable, you know, that the kids are not hurting, but maybe the focus should be on on containing some vibrations, electrical stimulations or so, so that they get their practice eight hours a day or so while they're sitting. And you know, I don't know, is this know, concept there? Yeah, the year before last, I took a group of students into a public school system and we said, can we change how children are positioned in school and make a difference to how much time they can spend upright? And, and we were actually adding things to wheelchairs that were very fancy wheelchairs that would collapse with a child who had a lot of extension and, and they were all leaning backwards and things. And that's, you know, we use the same principles that Adam and I use in our studies. We stabilize the pelvis in vertical alignment. We give segmental support to the level that the child needs it. We get them in vertical alignment. And it's just shocking how much it changes the child's ability to start interacting in the classroom. So, you know, there, there's lots of work to be done with respect to giving these children a position in which they actually have an opportunity to be vertical and able to manage posture at the same time. Sandy, proprioception seems to develop rostrocaudally. And is it possible that these kids are stuck in development and cannot transition from one state to the other? I think they can overcome it, but I think we don't yet know all of the parameters we need to put in place to help them overcome it. So we've seen children change the level of control, but the children with CP are much harder to change than for instance, a child with spinal cord injury, which just blows my mind. You know, the child with CP has a normal spinal system. And yet we have, it's a, it's a challenge to get them to get enough practice, I think enough vertical time. But even a child without head control, if you give them the right supports, you will see that it, maybe they can come up and, and hold their head and sustain it in vertical alignment longer if you set them up with the right amount of supports. So we have so much more research to do to get to the intervention side of this. Um, I'm trying to hold myself back and say, let's understand the mechanisms first. And this study that we just did kind of blew my mind because in typical babies, we see them go through this process. They do the cephalocaudal process, but they also go through a series where you, you, know, you see them, there may be a critical window where they gain a certain amount of control and then they begin to integrate the visual and vestibular systems. And we don't know yet on a typical, even on the typical babies, what does that window look like in the development of sitting? Um, babies develop it so quickly. Um, so Adam and I have been using this paradigm for typical infants, and we're, um, we're just starting to get into modeling some of that and looking at how they begin to integrate the visual and vestibular systems and trying to look at the parameters around typical development that help them make that leap. Because I think that's, we need to understand that before we get too carried away with, well, let's try this and try that on the kids. I think we want to understand what we're trying to do and find out how to enhance their ability to, to open that window of opportunity for them. So talk a lot about posture and the pulmonary dysfunction. And we know it's a lead of death in children with CP that, you know, they have problems with breathing. Do you see that basically the posture affects also your control of breathing, like the intercostal muscle, diaphragm, etc.? Is, is that 
similarly affected and also more reflexive and less controlled by, you know, supraspinal control. And, you know, when you think about respiration, I think it's really multifactorial too, because being upright can drive your respiratory system in a different way than it is if you're reclining, you know, being more active can drive your respiratory system. And, and, and then you have the overlap between, you know, if you're, if you're hanging out crooked, you've collapsed part of your, of your trunk in a way that's going to inhibit your respiratory system also. So I think there's, there's multiple factors there that tie respiratory in with posture for these kids. One of the things that's amazing to see is that a lot of times as you begin working on trunk control, you see changes in vocalizations. You see kids start changing, um, you know, they'll start having longer vocalizations or more um, in-depth attempts to talk or communicate. So I think that, that that's a reflection also that as you start to get more upright, you're able to start controlling both of those systems together. Oh my God, this is so heartbreaking, correct? I mean, like if you, if you cannot talk even you, because of your postural problems and, and then the sleeping will disturb also brain development. And uh, to what extent is sleep a driving factor of the trajectory of these children? Do you know? You know, there's a new article that just came out. I just saw it yesterday looking at sleep in children with cerebral palsy. And they did show in that article that the gym, the non-ambulatory children have significantly more sleep deficits than the ambulatory children. All children with CP had more difficulties than typically developing peers. But it not only was the, the child who's non-ambulatory have some like disrupted sleep, meaning they wake up often, they have trouble falling asleep. Um, or they wake up early, or they, they um, you know, seem to have pain when they're asleep. Um, but that also, you're talking not just about a child having difficulties with sleep. If a child is having difficulties with sleep, you have a parent who's having difficulties with sleep. And so it, it's really a cascading issue for kids. I have already decided I'm going to start doing some sleep questionnaires for kids who are in intervention studies to say, if we change postural control, do we make a difference? In, in the pattern of sleep that they have, you know. And very often a child who's more severely impaired will end up having clinicians say, well, you have to be in a, a postural device at night in order to keep you from getting contractures. And, mm -hmm. and the, the sleep study that was just published, they didn't ask about how the child was sleeping. They would just ask, were they sleeping or not? They didn't ask about positioning and things. But I, I know I tried a few times to put a positioning device on myself that I had recommended to a child just to say, you know, how would I feel about wearing this overnight? And it drove me crazy. It was like, oh. you know, it's like we do those kind of things to kids. And then, we, you know, I'm, so there's a lot. Yeah, of it's, it's terrible. Yeah. To what extent do you think that we can use fMRI or also TMS to better understand the underlying connectivity and disturbances? Yeah. I mean, right off the bat, my initial feelings is yes, but in the future. <laughs> I feel like we kind of need to have a more refined understanding of what's going on because I, I would get the impression, I'm not an expert in those techniques, but I get the impression that it would be particularly challenging to use those techniques in kids with severe CP. And so you'd really want to know what you're going for is really worth the extra effort, if that makes sense. We need to have a very specific hypothesis. And, and I think right now, it, we don't know enough yet. I mean, if we can go a little further with this modeling, we modeled the lowest levels in this study. So 
so the lowest levels that the kids could go. So the, these were the children who could handle support at the pelvis or the lumbar region. But we also have data from higher levels of support that, that we need to model. Um, we really need to understand what happens in the typical infants during that critical period. So we need to get some infant data that's modeled. And then when we start being able to say, this is what we think is really going on with the kids with CP, what we think might jump them from one stage of, of integrating sensory input to another, then I think it's time to start getting some fancier techniques that can really help us understand which systems are, are, are feeding those. Um, I mean, that's just my gut level is that we still have a lot to, to understand yeah, I, I can imagine. And, and of course, it's very, very sad, you know, because you have a lot of these cool techniques to, to study functional connectivity. And we know that in cerebral palsy, you know, the, the, the asymmetries that you see in the behavior, you can see them also in the functional connectivity. And it would be nice to correlate this with your very detailed characterization. And, yes. and that could explain basically why, you know, you have a bigger reliance on proprioception, less reliance on visual inputs. But then maybe you have also children that actually don't have that problem and, and, and you could correlate that. So, yeah, very, I mean, lots to do. So, so in fact, uh, that leads you to this question, you know, what are the next steps? What are your next steps? Well, I'll, maybe I'll mention a few of our next steps. And uh, one of them is certainly, as uh, Sandy had already mentioned, is we kind of modeled in this study um, some of the most challenging conditions. We kind of put the level of support as low as could be safely tested. And so that was really valuable because it's probably the most intuitive. Um, it's the most similar to sort of free sitting that we could get. Right. But we really have a lot more data with higher levels of support where kids have better posture control over the segments that are free to move. And so I would hypothesize that we would see better uh, neural control with higher levels of support, better meaning more mature like, um, better, less sensory motor noise. Some of these things that are making posture control challenging that we would see less of that. But we need to look and see because that would really tell us what is the effect neurologically of these different levels of trunk control when it comes to the overall posture control system. So that would be certainly one step. Another thing is we have this paradigm called uh, sway referencing that was, um, invented by amazing scientists many, many years ago, used predominantly in standing. And we sort of adapted that to sitting. And the idea is that when your body sways a little bit to the right or left, the surface you're sitting on sways to the right or left um, the same amount in, at the same timing. And so therefore your proprioceptive feedback is really diminished. So for these kids where we know that, or we think we know that they're relying a lot on proprioception, if we really make that information almost useless, we're really almost forcing them to use vision and vestibular to really see, are they capable of it? You know, And so that would be a paradigm that we've done a few pilot studies on, but would really like to move further in. And then I think maybe the last thing just to mention is uh, typically developing infants uh, Sandy had already mentioned, um, those are kind of ongoing to, to like try to look at when do typically developing infants using a similar paradigm uh, start using vision and vestibular for postural control. Very fascinating. Sandy, you want to add to your next steps? 
here. So of course I'm invested in all those steps that Adam just listed. Um, but then I, I also am, am really interested in, in this question of can kids change? And if so, which kids change and how? And I do have pilot data from some intervention pilot studies that I'm hoping to, to take a look at. And then now that I've just finished sabbatical, I've got all kinds of ideas about how to enhance what's going on for these kids. So I'm really starting to look at trying to get some intervention directions going. Uh, and then of course I want Adam to model the kids before and after the intervention. Um, so that would be a, a big piece of this is to try to say, if we did the intervention in this way versus this way, what do we see different happening for the kids? So that's probably one of my biggest goals right now is, is to start moving this in a direction that we can start helping kids because it's great to find out all these things about their system, but if we don't get out there and start applying it, it it's like these kids are growing up without, without this benefit. You know, the other thing, you know, there's studies I would love to do that I don't think I'm gonna have time to do, but I'm hoping that, that people will read this article and I, I'm seeing it more and more that um, more people are recognizing that you can do, that you can collect data in a way that you can get meaningful information from these kids with severe disability. And so getting more researchers invested in going after these really difficult clinical questions, um, it's going to be huge. So I'm hoping that this article will also inspire people to say, oh, we could go after this. And one of the things that's driving me crazy that I haven't had time to do is that in typical babies, they've looked very carefully at the connection between visual and vestibular um, information with posture before the baby ever begins to sit up. So they've done these studies where, you know, they position them and they give them optical flow and look at how their postural responses are to that. It would be easy to take some of those paradigms that they've done in typical infants and just replicate them in kids with severe CP. I, I think we're begging to say, is the visual system connected to posture from birth like it is in a typical baby? If it is, then it means it's something activity-wise that's going on that's not allowing the child to use it. Um, and, and it would be nice to go after some of those. So. You know, this is the beauty about being an editor of a journal, because, I mean, that's really our hope that we ad address different types of lists that then get inspired. I mean, like myself, you know, I'm a basic scientist more from that side. You know, one of the big questions is, you know, reflex reversal, where standing, your reflexes are very different than when you're walking. And it depends on a lot of these conceptually, like the, the neuromodulatory state of uh, the organism. And so maybe some of the solutions to this is that we can change the state of these spinal circuits yeah. to be much more active, much more reversing, you know, changing, modulating these reflexes instead of being rigid. Maybe that's the conceptual answer, but that could, again, that could be addressed with these concepts in mind and, and working with a, a team like yours. So yeah, I, I, I agree. This is exactly why, why we were so glad that you published with us. And because uh, we are a multidisciplinary journal and we have this kind of broad leadership, you know, like from, from spinal cord research to, you know, human movements and clinical applications. So it's wonderful. Now, can I get from you also now the, the most important take-home messages that you want listeners to remember? So let's start maybe with Sandy and then Adam. Um, let's see. So I already gave you one of them, which was that we can get meaningful data. The kids, I think it's very important to realize that you can help a child just by looking at how you offer support. And, and so we were able, the whole reason we were able to do this study 
is because we've used this a segmental approach to getting them in a position where they can show us what their capacity for upright control is. So I think that knowing that that can, can happen. I love that the engineers can help us. So I, I also think a, a big message is go talk to the next door neighbor who's an engineer. You know, start putting <laughs> brains together and, and figure out how we can apply some of the really rapidly changing technology and go after the needs of the kids who are more severely impaired. It's, it's, you know, we've got lots of bells and whistles now. So let's jump into working with these kids who are more severe. Sandy, I'm sure your father, the inventor, would have been proud of what you just said. It was great. Adam, your take-home message. Yeah, well, Sandy's was fantastic. Um, I would just point at our pilot results, pilot in the sense that it's eight, I wish it were 80, but they definitely point to something that is a sound footing. It is now, now we have some ideas. We have a conceptual framework for how to look at severe CP in terms of postural control. And um, so I would say kind of my take home point here is that this simple passive and reflexive control system in severe CP with some use of proprioception uh, is a starting point to dig further and test more hypotheses. But I think it's, uh, it was one of those results that came out really consistently in the GMFCS fours and fives. And coincidentally, the one subject who was three was the only one who didn't fit into this uh, pattern. So I feel like before this study, we really didn't know. Like I wouldn't necessarily have predicted this, but it came out very strong. And so, and, and so I think it's a step forward. Thank you very much, Sandy and Adam. That was extremely powerful, this interview, as it really addresses an important issue in pediatrics. And I can tell you from the perspective of the parents that this is an important topic that needs further research. And it's great to see a team like the two of you working together to solve this incredibly important topic and problem. And I'm hoping that your work will inspire also future generation to tackle this clinically very, very urgent issue. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.